Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Mary Donahue. Our new summer issue is out, and it's chock full of places to go and things to see. Check out what's happening at our 35 plus partner museums. There are concerts, walks, tours, art shows, all perfect for a day trip. Get your copy at ctexplore.org. In this episode of Grading the Nutmeg, Natalie Belanger chats with some members of Connecticut's Cape Verdean community to learn more about the culture's deep roots in Connecticut. hearing is from an album called Garisau by George Job and his sons Gene and Roy. They were a musical family based in Waterbury. George was a composer of Cape Verdean ballads called Morna. Cape Verde is an island nation off the coast of West Africa with a unique culture that's a blend of African and Portuguese. And New England is home to the largest community of Cape Verdeans in the United States. For today's episode, I chatted with two Cape Verdean Connecticut's. Roberta Vincent has been a passionate advocate for the Cape Verdean community in her hometown of Norwich, Connecticut, for decades. Educator Corrine Paul grew up in Stratford and is president of the Cape Verdean Women's Club of Bridgeport. Both women took the time to tell me a little about the origins of the community in New England and to talk about their personal experiences maintaining their cultural heritage. This conversation was recorded in May, and you'll hear some references to the Connecticut Historical Society, or CHS, my employer. However, as of late June, the CHS has a new logo and a new name, the Connecticut Museum of Culture and History. With our bicentennial coming up in 2025, this new name reinforces our commitment to our modern delivery and interpretation of history and culture. The Connecticut Museum is where you will learn more about the critical role Connecticut continues to play in American history and about the many cultures living in the state today. So fittingly, this conversation you're about to hear also includes Lynn Williamson, Lynn is the mutual friend who introduced me to Roberta and Corrine. She's the former director of the Connecticut Cultural Heritage and Arts Program, which is Connecticut's official folk and traditional arts initiative. The program, affectionately known as CHAP, merged with the former Connecticut Historical Society, now Connecticut Museum of Culture and History, in 2015. I'm excited to have an opportunity to introduce the work of CHAP to the podcast audience. Uh, Lynn, Roberta, Corrine, Thank you so much, all of you, for being here with me today. Um, I think I'll start with a question for Corrine. Tell the listeners a little bit about the Cabo Verde, the islands, a little bit about the the history, the culture of this place that the community originates from. Um, So Cabo Verde is located off the west coast of Africa, um, somewhere between 385 to 400 miles it's, it's an island nation, actually a group of islands, 10 islands altogether. There are nine that are inhabited and the culture, well, actually, well, let me back up a little bit. The islands were actually, they started to be inhabited by the Portuguese back in the 1400s and Cabo Verde was actually the main hub for the slave trade for years and years. So uh, what happened naturally is the people became mostly a mixed people of Portuguese and African. 
Um, so that um, is our basic cultural history. And over the years, our culture has consisted of a lot of things that come directly from Portuguese culture. So the main language there, the official language is Portuguese, uh, as well as Criollo, which is actually a mixture of Portuguese and African language. So a lot of people speak Criollo at home and they learn Portuguese in school. And, you know, the masses are in Portuguese. The government is run in Portuguese. So a lot of people uh, right off the bat are bilingual because they speak both languages um, inside the house and outside of the house. And our music, which is one of my favorite parts of our culture, is kind of like a mix of Caribbean and Latin music and uh, a lot of jazz infused within it. Um, So it can be very soulful, it can be very traditional, and then uh, more upbeat, uh, especially the modern music that comes from Cabo Verde artists. And of course, the food is wonderful. So I have to put that in because we love our Cape Verdean food. We're going to talk about the food because that's always one of my favorite things to talk to anybody about. And then we're going to come back to the music too. But could you tell us when did uh, people, um, and it's Cape Verdean, right? Is the, is the, there's a fancy name, the demonym, I think, for people from the islands. When did they first start coming to New England? I would say the late, I don't know the exact date, but I would say the late 1800s. Most of my family members who, when my family first started coming, it was early 1900s. Um, and I know people started coming er, a little earlier than that. Roberta, what do you know what kinds of occupations attracted people here or what kinds of jobs Cape Verdeans did when they came to Connecticut? For example, your family, uh, the first ones to migrate? My grandfather Uh, was born on the island of Sunny Cloud. My mother's family is from the island of Fogue. But my grandfather came to this country aboard the Emma R. Smith in 1908. And he settled in Norwich. And they actually came over for a better life. While traveling here, my grandfather worked as a carpenter's assistant, and that's what he did when he got here. There are a lot of Cape Verdeans who, when they first came, they worked at uh, Allen's Point, which was railroad and coal. They shoveled coal. They worked at Van Tassel Mill, which was a leather company, cleaning the leather. A lot of them worked at Panema Mills, which was a woolen mill. And and later on, they formed their own businesses because the Cape Verdean uh, people are known for their stonework. So there are many who built walls and, and did many forms of construction. So you mentioned, so you're from Norwich. I'm originally, yes, yep. born and raised in Norwich, Connecticut. Yeah. And you mentioned that your parents, uh, your grandparents came from separate islands. Can we talk a, a little bit about that? Because the feature, one of the interesting features about Cabo Verde is it's made up of islands. Does coming from different islands mean that you're bringing a little slightly different sort of cultural heritage with you or a little bit a different mix? How does that, how does that affect uh, immigration or migration? I believe the different islands, I believe the they all speak Creole, but I believe it's a different dialect. The pronunciation of words may be a little bit different. Corrine, what about where did you grow up in 
you grew up in Connecticut. Tell us a little bit about the community you came from. I did. Yes. Uh, I grew up in Stratford, born and raised in Stratford, Connecticut. And my parents were born and raised here as well. My grandparents, however, are from uh, different states. Well, actually, the the ones that came directly from Cabo Verde all came into New Bedford. So that that is the starting point. Um, several of them moved to Connecticut. One, my mother's uh, father's side of the family actually stayed in that area, um, moved to Rhode Island. And that's what a lot of Cape Verdeans would do. They would go, first come into New Bedford and then either stay there or somewhere around or move to Rhode Island. Um, and then many, many came to Connecticut after that. And so my paternal grandparents actually started out in Rhode Island um, and then eventually moved to Connecticut. And my mother's side came into New Bedford and then came right into Connecticut. So uh, we've been here for generations. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, my parents and I all graduated from the same high school in Stratford, which is right outside of Bridgeport, which mm -hmm. is an, another main hub um, where a lot of Cape Verdeans live. So that's the that's the neighborhood that I grew up knowing the Cape Verdean culture in in Bridgeport. We've mentioned so far. We've mentioned communities like Norwich, Stratford, Bridgeport, um, New Bedford, which tells me that there's a link here between the maritime industry and this community as well. New Bedford back in the 1800s and even before was a center of whaling. Is this where the earliest Cape Verdeans came to New England originally? Was there a connection with whaling and and um, the, the sea trades? Yes, definitely. Um, so, you know, coming from a group of islands, uh, one of the main jobs is fishing, you know, being a fisherman. So a lot of men actually came here as whalers. If you go to New Bedford, you'd be able to visit the Whaling Museum, which is a wonderful place to capture all of that history. They have many pictures and artifacts and just the whole history of whaling as, you know, and Cape Verdeans as they came as whalers to America. And not only whalers, but a lot of them worked on ships. Uh, like my, one of my maternal grandfathers, he's, uh, let's see, my great, great, so my second great grandfather actually worked on a ship. And as I do my genealogy research, I have found numerous records of the different ships that he's been on. Uh, so it's just great, you know, being able to find that, that information and find those records. The fact that this is a group of people that come to a coastal place from a set of islands and they're linked by the Atlantic um, makes me think that there has to have been a fair amount of communication back and forth over the years and the generations between the settlements in New England and uh, the home islands themselves. One of you tell me a little bit about what you know about that aspect of the community. Yes, I'd love to. So uh, the people that did end up coming uh, to the United States, one thing they always did was send money back home to help out because, you know, most people came here because they, you know, needed better opportunity for living uh, because the land was uh, so dry and there was always drought. Um, it, it's just it was just a better opportunity to come to the to the United States and, you know, make better money. So they would always send money back home. And I just recently had the thrill of being able to read my paternal grandfather's letters that he would send back and forth to people in, in uh, Sunaclau. That's the island that both my sides are from. And it, it was just so nice to read. And, he, and most of the letters were between him and his father. 
And even though it was a father-son relationship, the letters were just so formal. <laughs> so it was just, you know, amazing to see that and actually read the letters. And I actually read them and told my father what they're about because they are they're in Portuguese. So um, I got my level to the point where I actually, you know, can read the language and communicate that back to them. So they would always send letters and, you know, talk about the family and the money that was being exchanged and what they could use it for um, and how appreciative they were uh, of receiving it as well. How common is it today for Cape Verdeans in Connecticut to speak or read or have any fluency in either Portuguese or Criollo? It is becoming more common. Um, so when I was growing up, my parents didn't really teach me the language. I grew up speaking strictly English. I knew some Criollo because my great-grandmother lived with us. Um, so I did get to learn a lot from speaking to her. Uh, she would speak to me in, in Criollo sometimes, or a mixture of the two. <laughs> so I got to know uh, certain words as I was growing up. Later on, I took Spanish because I really wanted to understand more. And then um, I eventually started learning Criollo by speaking to different people. But as a whole, I think I think people got away from it for a little while. But now I'm seeing a shift where people want to learn the language. So if they were born here and they didn't learn Criollo grow growing up, they're now taking lessons. And we have a lot of people who are providing that service, you know, and now because of COVID, it's it's been mostly virtual. So that's been wonderful. People can, you know, have more opportunities to learn the language. But I'm seeing a shift back to where people want to keep that part of their culture and be able to, to communicate in our language. Roberta, does that track with your experience as well? Yes, I think that is one of the most important things for your ethnicity. If you have a language to teach your children, I believe if I grew up, if I grew up with grandparents, I would have known the language because they speak the traditional Creole, but that it's unfortunate. So I know a few words. I, I love the music, but I don't speak it. It is a loss. And we've been very, I've been very, very involved in the Cape Verdean community, learning the history, not speaking the language, but learning the history. We currently completed a um, history project. I got a grant from uh, the State Historic Preservation Office, because although there are Cape Verdeans in Norwich and they have a lot of very rich history, there's nothing that's been documented. So if you went to the library in Norwich, you would not find any local history there. So we completed the history in 2021 and 2022. And it was a great compilation. Uh, we hired a historian, Rachel Carley, and she interviewed uh, at least 50 people. There is currently a Cape Verdean student club at our local high school. So there is more of a um, ethnicity building, language building here in Norwich. Well, and 
So Roberta, you know, you've talked about documentation and this is a great, you thank you for queuing me up to bring Lynn Williamson into our conversation. Yeah. Um, Lynn is my um, coworker at the Connecticut Historical Society and um, she is the retired director of the Connecticut Cultural Heritage Arts Program, affectionately known as CHAP. So mm-hmm. I'm going to invite Lynn to tell us just a little bit about what CHAP does and, and how long it's been doing its thing, and then tell us how you met uh, Roberta and Corrine and got involved with the Cape Verdean community. Okay. I am very lucky because I'm the second of three directors of CHAP. And CHAP began in 1991. It was developed by the Institute for Community Research in Hartford. And the purpose of CHAP has always been, over its 32 years, to learn more about the many ethnic and occupational communities all around the state, to document their activities and their artists and the cultural resource people who live in those communities. And then CHAP has always partnered with members of the community on projects that bring their stories and their heritage practices to audiences. Uh, CHAP has worked closely with many people in many different communities, and together we've developed many different kinds of projects, sometimes exhibits, sometimes workshops or educational presentations, sometimes concerts. And right now, uh, the CHS is making the archive of photos and videos that CHAP has collected for 32 years more accessible online through platforms, including the Connecticut Digital Archive, so that other audiences can see what goes on around the state, the sort of under the radar, what is the richness of knowledge and traditional practices that go on all over our state and contribute to the character of Connecticut. It's really amazing how many community groups sustain their heritage through traditions, food, stories, art forms, language, as we've been saying, and pass these tradition and these practices onto their children. It's very, very inspiring, and there's a lot to learn. So when did you first begin to work with Cape Verdeans in Connecticut? Well, I first came across the Cape Verdean community in the mid-1990s in Waterbury, when I met and interviewed a wonderful musician named George Job, who wrote the music that you played at the beginning of the show. George suggested I go to the Cape Verdean Social Club on North Main Street, where they were going to celebrate the Festa de San Joao during the third weekend in June. They do this annually. Um, And this coincides with the summer solstice and the traditional Feast of St. John, which is actually celebrated by many, many ethnic groups in the state. I was thrilled to observe this festa because at the time, the Waterbury Cape Verdeans, many of whom also, like Corrine's family, came from San Nicolau, they would create a procession with a model ship that they would make. Um, they carry this in the procession. It reflects their maritime roots. And then to accompany the model ship, they would perform this vibrant drumming with whistles. And there are many men who would gather together in a group and they would drum and they would play whistles. They would process 
And they did this for many, many years up at Wilby High School in Waterbury. Um, the drumming tradition called Repicard de Tambour is a signature of the Waterbury Cape Verdeans, and they, they still do this. And it's really very, very exciting to be part of it. You just feel your heart rate is rising when they're playing the drum in this way. So over many years, I recorded this festival. From that experience, I thought, oh, I wonder what else is going on in the Cape Verdean community in Connecticut. Where are people? What do they do? What other things take place? So over the years, I began to hang out at the clubs and document the music and meet the people. And eventually, we developed a Cape Verdean community history project from 1997 through 1999. This project recorded many oral history interviews. When We produced a concert of music, a collection of photographs and resource materials, and we produced a project publication back in the culmination of uh, the project in 1999. I was honored to work closely with Corrine's great aunt, Antonia Sequeira, in Stratford, who was the project co-director and a vibrant woman, deeply enmeshed in the community, very knowledgeable. She knew everyone all over the state, and so she would uh, conduct these wonderful interviews, and eventually we compiled all of these into our archive and our publication, and Corrine was our translator way back then. <laughs> We also visited Norwich and we documented the Norwich Cape Verdeans and their activities as well. And um, and we still do. This continues. The Repicard continues with new members and some of the same men who are now in their 80s and 90s still drumming. And the vibrancy of this community around the state is really very, very inspiring. We'll be back in a minute with my guest. I just recently saw this exhibit and I couldn't recommend it more highly. The Litchfield Historical Society's newest exhibition, To Come to a Land of Milk and Honey, Litchfield and the Connecticut Western Reserve, is now on display. Learn more about this land in present-day Ohio that was reserved by Connecticut after the American Revolution for its continued use and settlement. Exhibition supported by a grant from Connecticut Humanities. Learn more and plan your visit with free admission at litchfieldhistoricalsociety.org. Connecticut. Who are we? The answer is found in a lot more than our faces. It's in how we've lived and worked and moved and played. The key to understanding our identity is deeper than geographic or demographic. It's biographic. And just when you think you know what makes us, us, you discover something new. Something or someone who makes you rethink, reframe, and reimagine what's at the heart and soul of us. There's no easy way to sum up what makes our state such a unique place. But there is a simple, fun way to start finding out. The Connecticut Museum of Culture and History. Come revisit who we are. Learn more at ConnecticutMuseum.org. I'm Kathy Hermes, the new publisher of Connecticut Explored. If you're enjoying our Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, I feel sure you'll love our print magazine, 
with its articles, photo essays, and all the news about upcoming exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. Subscribe now at ctexplored.org. Thanks for listening. Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast. While you were talking, I pulled up the Connecticut I pulled up the Connecticut Digital Archive. It's ctdigitalarchive.org, and it's a place where dozens of historical uh, sites and libraries um, and repositories across the state have just put all of their digitized um, objects um, or items, and there are tens of thousands of hits if you put in Cape Verde. Um, on on the search term. And it is everything from photographs to uh, musical performances and videos. Um, It is really a fantastic, and I've dipped into this before. um, So it's a fantastic testament to all of the work that's been put in over the years to document and preserve all of this cultural expression. I have a question for uh, Roberta and Corrine, which is, for heritage to stay alive, right, you need to bring in young people. And um, earlier, Kareen made the comment that uh, there's a younger folk, that there seems to be a desire to, a growing desire to learn the language and keep the language going. What is the, what is the community doing to bring younger people into, into the fold and make sure that they continue to carry on these traditions? Well, I, for one, uh, and seeing a lot of that in Bridgeport. In Bridgeport, we have the Asociação Cabo Verdeana in Bridgeport, which is a Cape Verdean association. It's been there for years and years and years, as far as I can remember. Um, And it's always been the hub in Bridgeport for the Cape Verdean community. They are really working to get back towards being that. And I see the younger Cape Verdeans who are members really taking over and um, planning these events and making sure that the little kids that are coming up now have the same experiences that they had. So, you know, they're making sure that they have all the parties for the kids, Easter, Halloween, Christmas, that type of thing. Uh, Recently, there was um, an advertisement for a mother-son dance, and there's always a Mother's Day dinner, things like that, that they're really trying to keep going. They uh, had one Cape Verdean in the in the uh, community, Anna Depina Cameron, uh, spoke one day on healthcare, which is, you know, something that I don't think has been done, but it is very important to the community, you know. Um, and, and that one was geared towards men, which is even more important. So uh, they are attempting to do language and culture classes as well. So that's a way to really, you know, bring in the younger kids and keep them involved. And um, I'll talk about one thing that my club is doing. Um, I'm the president of the Cape Verdean Women's Club uh, of Bridgeport. And the club has been around since the 1940s and was actually one of the founders was Antonia Saqueira, who uh, Lynn mentioned. Um, And the main thing that we do is we give out the scholarships to college students uh, of Cape Verdean descent. And uh, one thing that we'll be doing this year is involving those students in the community somehow. You know, usually we ask them, well, how do you contribute to, to your community? How will you contribute to your community after you've Got, you know, gone to college and get your degree. But now we're going to start asking them as a recipient of our scholarship to um, help out in the community in some way. And one of the main ways that they can do that, that we've already talked about, is to volunteer at the club for the yearly family festival 
uh, that's held in Bridgeport every last weekend in July. It's a big celebration, you know, involving music and food and culture. They have soccer tournaments for the, the younger kids. Um, so this is a way to involve our teenagers and young adults as well. Um, so that's what I see happening in Bridgeport. Roberta, what about you in the Norwich area? One of the things I think that's very helpful, as I stated, is a Cape Verdean student group within Norwich Free Academy High School. They not only meet and they certainly come from different islands to talk about their experiences and and their lives here away from their home. But uh, NFA ensures that they bus these students and other students who want to learn about our culture to the Cape Verdean Museum, which was originally located in Providence, and now it's located in Pawtucket. So they just celebrated the opening of that museum with artifacts from all of the different clubs. I know that our club uh, certainly have artifacts there to protect them. And um, it's just a, a venue where you can learn about everything. Uh, another thing we do is the St. Anthony Chapel. We give out a scholarship each year to a graduating senior. However, they do not have to be Cape Verdean. But one of the things we ask is that they uh, submit an essay based on their area of study, such as education, doing a comparison of, of the education in the United States and the education in the Cape Verde Island. So irregardless, the applicant has to touch on our history. So we do that. The first Cape Verdean festival, the first kickoff celebration was done in 2019. And then the first annual Cape Verdean festival took place in May of 2019. And we have continued to do that each year. The uh, involvement for the young people as far as the dance, the interaction with others, the language, and uh, there are so many things for them to do, the storytelling. So it's it's like home for a lot of them. Lynn, I understand that there have been a few Cape Verdean artists who and apprentice teams um, who have gone through the Southern New England apprenticeship program. Could you just tell us a little bit about the program and so listeners know what I'm talking about? <laughs> the Southern New England Traditional Arts Apprenticeship Program uh, was started by CHAP in 1997. Uh, I worked with my colleague from Rhode Island, Winifred Lambrecht, who was is a folklorist based in Rhode Island. I and mean, we had noticed that there are so many communities that cross state lines. So there, we wanted to bring them together for teaching and learning. And among the many, many groups that have been part of that program over the years, it's still going. We're in our 25th year have been many Cape Verdean because the musicians are so strong in New England. We, Winnie had known about Jean Surreal, um, who is a, 
an accordion player from uh, originally from the island of Santiago. And Santiago is one of the most African-influenced islands in Cabo Verde. Jean was living in Pawtucket at the time where a lot of Cape Verdeans live. And we thought he would be a wonderful person to play music to accompany some of the dance groups in Waterbury. And he also was the mentor artist to dance groups in Norwich. So when young dancers have live music to perform to, it's it's really um, educational for them. It, you dance differently to recorded music than to live music. So we were very, very lucky to have Jean Cyril and his cousins playing traditional unana, chabeta, dances like that um, for our Cape Verdeans in Connecticut. So I have a question for Roberta and Corrine. Since Cape Verdean um, immigration continues, migrant communities leave and, you know, they, they migrate to new places and they bring their culture with them and they um, develop it and it grows and it evolves in its new home and it, it develops its own unique flavors and culture back home at the point of origin also develops and, and evolves and develops, you know, sort of goes in new directions. And I'm just curious, are there ever any, you know, for newcomers coming here now in, in the 20, oh gosh, what, what decade, the 2020s in, in this century from uh, Cabo Verde and they come here to Connecticut, what are some of the um, differences that or are there differences? You know, it's like, wow, this is, you know, you you guys still do the food this way? Well, we don't do it that way anymore. Or, you know, anything along those lines. I'm just curious about that. Two thoughts come to mind with that. As far as the food, I would say there are a couple of dishes that are always the spark of friendly arguments online. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it that way. And I'll just mention one of them. I may as well, because it's the most popular argument. Uh, we have a dish called kachupa. That is our main staple dish. And somewhere, somehow, uh, and by the way, it's a stew filled with um, different kinds of beans, as limey beans, kidney beans, potatoes, or any kind of vegetable you really want to put in. I love it with greens. And then you have your meat, whatever meat you want to put in. Somewhere, somehow, uh, it started being called manchupa instead of kachupa in certain communities. And I would say that's mainly the New Bedford area. And it's inched its way into Connecticut, although we we call it kachupa in my family. So there are changes like that. Is Was it really called manchupa anywhere in Capo Verde? I don't know. Some people claim, yes, it was in Brava. But then there are people who are from Brava, the island of Brava, and say, no, it has never been called that here. So there are friendly arguments like that. Um, and then there are uh, another example would be uh, rice and beans. We do call it jagasita or jag in my family. Mm -hmm. However, people who have come from the islands a little closer to the present say, oh, no, that jagasita is a completely different dish. And they have shown the food, the you know, the recipe and told about it. I had never heard of it in my family. Perhaps it's where my family was from. Um, but that is the thing about the islands. They are also different. Um, so things vary from island to island. Um, you know, the language itself. 
can't remember his first name, Mr. Gonzalez or Dr. Gonzalez. Oh, Manuel Gonzalez wrote the wonderful book, the Cape Verdean Dictionary. He put all, you know, all the different terms from all the different islands in that book because they vary so much. So you can look up a word and there could be, you know, 10 ways to say it, you know, one from each island or maybe two from one particular island. So uh, things vary from island to island and from, and I think even from family to family. So, and even the way we pronounce some words, like some islands leave off the end of the word, like Cabo Verde, for example. Some people just say Cabo Verde, you know, and that's it. They don't give the E at the end. Um, so there are those differences all over the place. And then the thing I wanted to mention about the people who come here is um, it's different now because we have the internet. So people see what American life is like before they get here. So, and they're even adopting some of those ways in Cabo Verde before they even get a chance to come here and visit. Um, so I would say it's affected a lot of, you know, how people live in Cabo Verde what the kids are seeing growing up on the internet and what they even get involved in, you know, and I, I can see that in watching, you know, cause you can watch anything on the internet now or on anybody's Facebook live. And I've seen, you know, on Instagram as well, the things that they talk about, how they behave. And I'm talking about the younger children as well, like the teenage, the teenagers, uh, because they're seeing our life in America and they're adopting a lot of those ways. I'd like to give each of you a chance to tell the listeners, you know, what are one or two things that you think are really distinctive and unique about your um, heritage and community, things you'd like people to know about and maybe try to experience themselves at some point? Uh, Roberta, what do you think? Well, I would love to tell you the story about St. Anthony Chapel. My grandfather, as I stated, was born on the island of Sunny Clow, and he had always wanted to become a priest, but his family was too poor to send him to the seminary. So he came to this country, and he never lost sight of honoring St. Anthony. He just loved the saint. So as he was raising his children, he had a daydream, and he ended up building a tiny chapel according to the dream that was presented to him in his backyard on Talman Street. And that is one of the symbols of the arrival, the settlement, and the establishments of Cape Verdeans in Norwich. This is the place where before they even got the Cape Verdean Club, where they met outside of the chapel and, and talked about their future as Cape Verdeans. And eventually the chapel became historic on a state level. And in um, 2022, I received a grant from the um, William Pomeroy Foundation through the Connecticut Historical Society and they issued a grant for a legends and lore sign. So that sits 
next to the tiny chapel. So people know the story of Joseph Candido Delgado, who loved St. Anthony. And he loved, he loved God. Another um, thing I would like you to know is when we did the history of the Cape Verdeans in Norwich, naturally Tallman Street was one of the main streets where people lived. And when we did the history through the years, people have either passed away, they have moved. So it's no longer populated by Cape Verdean people. There may be one or two families on the whole street. So what we wanted to do is to ensure that Norwich remembered who lived on that street. So there are four street signs that says Tallman Street. We have now put signs above that that says Cabo Verde Way. So we will forever be known on that street as Cape Verdeans who prospered and grew and raised their children and ate the delicious food and played their music and congregated and loved each other. Those, those are the two big highlights for me. And so listeners who are traveling through Norwich can stop and Absolutely. see both of all of these landmarks. Yeah. Corrine, what about you? If you could tell our listeners to experience, sample, taste this culture, what would you recommend they do? I would say uh, just visit any community and join in on uh, their set the celebrations that we have. Um, and, and you just learn so much, just um, especially how much Cape Verdeans love being together um, mm-hmm. and celebrating their culture. We are a very proud group. Um, I, I would say that um, that's one thing about us that you, you, if you get to know us, that you notice that Cape Verdeans are very proud of who they are and where they come from. Uh, and they love to celebrate that. And we we are so excited because we are a smaller group and less well known. We are so excited when we meet each other, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially at uh, a place where you wouldn't expect to meet another Cape Verdean. You know, today there are Cape Verdeans all over the, the United States, you know, but long ago when there weren't, if you visited a certain place and met someone, you know, you were just surprised and, and so excited at the same time. Um, and then the other thing I, I just wanted to mention is um, that Cape Verdeans, you know, are not only a, a very proudful group of people, but they also... Um, believe in the value, they believe highly in the value of education. Um, That is one thing, you know, people come here as uh, an immigrant, and they don't know, they may not know the language, they're coming from a a place where it might be a little more difficult to live and uh, succeed and do certain things. So I see so many students who come here and, you know, it hasn't been long. They've been here a year or maybe two years and they are acing their classes. Um, They're excelling as students uh, because the family uh, and the student, you know, values their education that much. So uh, it's a wonderful thing to see. Well, thank you to all of you, Corrine, Roberta, Lynn. This has been wonderful.
Please be sure to check out the show notes for links to many resources about the Cape Verdean community in Connecticut. Thanks for listening. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the donate button at the top, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link at the bottom. Donations in any amount are greatly appreciated. We thank you. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Natalie Belanger and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at highwattagemedia.com. This is Mary Donahue. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history.